dedicated to the survival of American democracy in an increasingly dangerous world, this is Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney, acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Ronald Reagan, founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., the go-to man for defense and foreign policy issues, joined by the greatest minds in the security policy business, the special forces in the war of ideas at Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney. Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Gaffney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. A man whose intelligence we've come to admire greatly is that of Kerry Kishanik. He is a visiting scholar at the National Chenji University in Taiwan, has been for the past three years, and also an adjunct professor at the University of Canberra's Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis. He's the author of an important book, Political Warfare, Strategies for Combating China's Plan to Win Without Fighting, and an occasional paper just published by the Center for Security Policy, I'm very pleased to say, entitled Japan 2040, A Stark Appraisal that drills down on the particular vulnerability of Japan to such political warfare by the Chinese communists. And we're going to talk with Professor Gershanik about all of this in this first block. It's good to have you with us, Kerry. Thank you so much for joining us. Frank, thank you so much for having me back. It's been a long time since we chatted. Been too long. Let's level set if we can, Kerry. Give us an update on how you see the threat from communist China at the moment, um, both to, well, Taiwan, uh, and we'll come to Japan in a moment, also to us and certainly to our vital interests in the region, whether it's political warfare or other forms of what they call unrestricted warfare that the Chinese Communist Party has been engaged in for quite some time. Frank, China's been at war with us, with the United States, with Taiwan and with Japan and, and the other democracies, countries around the world for some time. We're in a particularly uh, tense phase of that war now. China is much more confident. China sees a badly declining, uh, ineffectual United States, and there's every indicator uh, that you would want to see. Uh, we can discuss during the course of this program, but they they have not gotten sufficient pushback uh, from the Biden administration. They've been able to effectively uh, in Anchorage and with the recent meeting in in uh, China by the, the second in charge of the State Department, they feel they've been able to steamroll the U.S. Um, and so they don't see a lot of uh, effective pushback. They see that the conditions are ideal now for them to proceed with the China dream, with the what Xi Jinping calls the, the, the great reunification. Um, and they think that uh, they are in a position militarily, economically, and politically to uh, push on Taiwan, to annex Taiwan into the People's Republic of China. Japan plays a big role in this. Um, the Japan, of course, has to be knocked out of play. Japan has to be attacked in such a way through political warfare, especially that it is not an effective host for U.S. forces in Japan, that it is not an effective ally in the defense of or uh, with the United States in defense of Taiwan and the other friends and allies regionally. So we're in, a, we're in a particularly difficult time, and it's not going to get better soon. That's the bottom line, isn't it? And uh, the concern, of course, is that for the reasons that you've mentioned, um, the Chinese may now feel confident that if political pressure 
if intimidation, if coercion is not sufficient to bend Taiwan to its will, that the correlation of forces, as communists are fond of calling them, uh, may now be such that they can, with confidence, use military means to subdue Taiwan without fear that the United States will interpose any real objections or uh, significant costs to them. Is, is that how you see it, Kerry? I, I see them thinking that they can checkmate us before they have to invade, that they can win through political warfare, win without, uh, not without struggle, but without actually kinetic uh, combat. Um, but I think they're more and more inclined to their, their, their self-imposed hyper-nationalization and uh, they're, they're just the, the arrogance, of a certain Sino-fascist arrogance uh, that persists within the Chinese Communist Party. I think they're, they're talking themselves into a, uh, like a, a drunk uh, talking himself into a barroom fight. I think uh, they're getting more and more cocky, more and more aggressive. They've always been expansionists. They hid it from those who didn't want to look too deep to see it. But they've always been expansionists. But they've they've been able to persuade the right people in the West, especially Washington, that now nah, there was going to be a peaceful rise. Never, never was intended to, to necessarily have to be peaceful. They just needed time to bide their time to build the strength. They think they've got it now. And uh, again, we're in a, as as, as uh, Jim Finnell, another of your guests, has said, we're in a very serious part of the decade of concern right now. Indeed. Um, they needed time, I think it's fair to say. Uh, they also needed access to uh, economic uh, enhancements, uh, whether they were the opportunities to sell into our markets and enrich themselves thereby, or um, obtain money from our capital markets, uh, which they've done massively, uh, notably under a memorandum of understanding that Joe Biden helped engineer when he was vice president of the United States that gave them preferential access to our capital markets, for heaven's sakes. When you put all this together, um, they have certainly used that time and used those resources to build up the military option. And based in Taiwan, as you are, Kerry, um, you're looking across that Taiwan Strait at the prospect of those military forces now being amassed. Is it your assessment that they are putting themselves, the Chinese Communist Party that is, in a position where the People's Liberation Army could more or less take on this massive amphibious undertaking uh, with very little forewarning, uh, warnings and indicators, as they say in the business, um, to us in the West. Uh, they have, in short, a kind of standing capability now to project power across those straits. They have a lot more power and capability than a lot of our analysts were willing to acknowledge for a long time. Uh, our intelligence community and, and policymakers for a long time discounted. They, didn't, they wouldn't even consider the commercial uh, vessels um, that, that are, in effect, amphibious assault vessels. They just don't need to be in the first wave. You have armored combat ships. You have amphibs. In the first waves, you have air assault, you have helleborne, you have airborne, you have special warfare units, and, and then you've got the the shock troops in the first waves coming in with um, with the amphibious assault vehicles that they copied from us and then, then made better 
and amphibious assault ships that they copied from us and, and made made pretty good. Um, so, but, but and what, commercial what, aircraft too that can be brought to bear as well. That are all part of the United People's Liberation Air uh, Army Air Force, in effect, by their law. Uh, we have certain aircraft that we have designated in the U.S. for those uh, support of, of the military. All of their aircraft, by law, are, are can be used, and most many of them are built in a way that they can be adapted quickly to combat service support operations. So, and on the one hand, let's let's acknowledge what for too long uh, those who uh, who wanted to go along get along. Um, within the intel community uh, refused to see that there are capabilities out there that provide the PLA and their adjuncts, the, the maritime militia and others will be used in this, um, to, to attack. It's not a done deal. They aren't necessarily going to be, uh, to be victorious. Uh, now that, that Japan is, is taking action to put mi- missiles, anti-ship missiles, um, in the Nante Shoto region, that is the, the Southwest Islands, uh, right near Taiwan, uh, to protect Japan's sovereignty, its territorial integrity, um, and also um, other steps that are being taken on the U.S. side. It is not a done deal, and I would, I would argue, yes, there's a lot of reasons to be very seriously concerned, even more so than we were five years ago, we were concerned then, um, about the PLA's capabilities, Frank. But I would also suggest that when the, the charred, blackened bodies of those Chinese sailors, airmen, Marines, and soldiers come floating back to the shores of mainland China, there's going to be a lot of upset moms and dads who only were allowed to have one son, one child. Who, uh, that, that's a very serious risk that the Xi Jinping takes that kill enough of them, and that is the key if, if you, you know, when you're dealing with thugs like the Chinese Communist Party, it's brute force that you need to stop them at a certain point. And you kill enough of those coming across the strait and the capabilities there with what Taiwan's got, what the U.S. has and what, what Japan has. And they could be a disastrous defeat for Xi Jinping, one that could actually um, be a turning point in whether China continues to accept rule by the Chinese Communist Party. So that's the, that's the wager that Xi Jinping is making. I can win and I'll be a god in uh, the People's Republic of China forever well above Mao Zedong. Or we take too many casualties and the populace turns against us, regardless of how we use political warfare internally to hypernationalize them. There is a certain point that the Chinese public, uh, they already they already rise up uh, periodically. But there's a certain point, I think, when the bodies come floating home. Um, and maybe some of the strikes from Taiwan start landing in China on their their facilities and taking a toll uh, back because China's not going to go down. Uh, it's uh, going to go quietly into the night. Um, I, I think there that is a gamble that right today Xi Jinping obviously isn't ready to take, and he'll, we want to continue to give him more reason to lose sleep at night over that question until such a time when he'll decide not to do it at all. Well, this is important on on two counts. One, it um, impresses upon all of us, I hope, the importance of helping further intensify that deterrent consideration, that this is not 
a done deal, as you put it. This is not going to go well. There will be real costs to China. And uh, our Committee on the Present Danger China has laid out some uh, important recommendations, both with respect to what the United States military itself should do, but also what uh, we should do to help the Taiwanese enhance that deterrent. But it, it brings us back to your other point, which is um, this idea that China has of, well, it goes back to Sun Tzu, I guess, uh, winning without fighting, being far preferable, a political warfare. And, and let's turn to Japan, because your, your important occasional paper about uh, Japan 2040 really brings this point home, that whether it's with respect to Taiwan, whether it's respect to uh, Japan, whether it's with respect to the United States itself, for that matter, um, we're all being targeted and aggressively, uh, I believe, you know, assaulted by Chinese political warfare day in, day out. They've gone specifically after the Japanese uh, in connection with a, or in response to a comment by one of its senior uh, figures, Japan's, that is, uh, that uh, Japan and the United States would come to Taiwan's aid militarily in the event of an attack against it by China um, by threatening um, repeated nuclear attacks on Japan. Um, walk us through how the Japanese are perceiving the political warfare that is being waged against them by the Chinese and um, what the implications are of not getting this right. The the sad fact in Japan is that not a lot of people are looking at it. Not a lot of people are taking it seriously. Um, and so uh, just like in the United States, Frank, as you well know, uh, too, too many uh, of our own elected officials, our policymakers, our military leaders, our State Department uh, personnel in particular, and uh, Department of Commerce, Department of Education, all those who are in the fight, they just don't know it. Um, after the, the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the end of the Cold War, um, we did away with our political warfare capabilities. We shut down U.S. Information Agency. We, we stopped teaching it. Georgetown doesn't, doesn't talk about PRC political warfare, the feeder universities for our State Department. They don't talk about it or haven't until recently. It wasn't until Randy Shriver and some other excellent people at, at, at uh, DOD started getting this, these issues back in front of the, uh, the, the the National Defense University that uh, the war colleges because they'd stopped teaching it and, they, and so we had senior officials who didn't uh, know how to recognize it how to detect it how to counter it how to defeat it same thing in Japan but in space I mean it's it's, it's you multiply that that ignorance and uh, inattention by by a thousand and that's Japan um, the so they 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 don't talk about it in their media you just like we have our self censorship. In many, many American universities where you, no, no, don't research that uh, issue because you'll never get your visa to China. You won't be invited to all the prestigious conferences because you'll be seen as being uh, a China basher if you, if you do too much work or any work on PRC political warfare. There, there, that, that is going on inside Japan as well, the self-censorship, the willful blindness. So it's ignorance, ineptitude, willful disregard, and in a lot of cases, greed. It gets back to your point you were saying earlier about those economic um, associations that are so deeply ingrained with the People's Republic of China now. That's not just giving the PRC capability to improve its, its military and to improve its 
um, united front operations. It is a united front operation in and of itself in that they, they buy people. That's where the greed comes in. It's willful disregard because, hey, we're making money. Look at the, the esteemed group of business leaders who went into uh, the Biden administration here within the past two weeks with a, a letter that said, OK, back off on China. You know, it may, may be totalitarian and genocidal, but back off because we want good trade with them. Absolute nonsense. I'd say, you know, adults don't think that way. But yet here we have. The people like that in very senior positions in the business community and the same thing in Japan. So we have a, a, a situation, we have a, a government under Abe, or we had a government under Abe that was beginning to wake up to that and be willing to, to put political capital on the line. But so much more uh, needs to be done. The current prime minister, again, there's there's the right noises are being made, and we'll see if the right actions are taken. That's a whole different issue. But the right the right words are being beginning to be said in Japan. But there really is a lot to do to back that up. And and part of it is you know looking out the front door and saying this is what you know can happen militarily. But the other is looking in the back door and saying how is our nation being subverted, our ability to defend ourselves undermined through political warfare. Uh, within Japan, and that th these are big steps that have not been taken yet. Talk a little bit, if you would, Kerry, because as you really observe, uh, the United States is being subjected to these same techniques, political warfare and, and uh, united front operations and what I call the enemy within, as is Japan, uh, and for that matter, Taiwan. Um, role should the United States be playing, despite all of that, to try to shore up Japan and uh, avoid the rather grim prognosis that you've laid out in this essay about uh, Japan 2040 and your uh, stark appraisal uh, published by the Center for Security Policy just recently as an occasional paper. Well, the what has to be done um, by the United States is get back to the steps that were being taken by Secretary Pompeo, um, again, within Department of Defense, within the FBI. Um, and, uh, and continue to, to crack down on Confucius Institutes, continue to crack down on the incredible amount of um, PRC, so-called news media, but propaganda organs that are here um, in, in the United States. Uh, we, had, we need to set the example, rather than go into all the details of what, what was done, and, and, and some of those important steps were turned around on the, at the beginning of the Biden administration, the Biden administration needs to show that it's serious in counterintelligence. Recently, to get that meeting in China that we asked for and went kowtowing and obsequiously and then got, got, uh, got slapped when we were there. But in order to get This that, is Wendy Sherman's uh, Wendy visit, Sherman's, uh, the Deputy Secretary visit, of State. Um, yeah, which didn't, didn't turn out well. And when you... When you beg to kowtow to the Chinese Communist Party, just expect it's not going to go well. But they didn't they didn't do that. But what we have to do is set the example for Japan with we you know with, with our counterintelligence, with our law enforcement, with the with the with the laws that we have. Just like Taiwan adapted some of our laws recently that helped them to be much more effective countering PRC political warfare against Taiwan in the 2020 election. Um, 
Japan needs to get much more serious. Right now, Frank, it is appalling what isn't going on there. Very weak, ineffective counterintelligence and anti-spying laws. This is when I was a counterintelligence officer in Japan uh, over the years. Um, that was one of our biggest problems. We, we could catch every spy we wanted to, and Japan would do nothing to prosecute them. Um, and, and that's you know basically what we did to get the Sherman visit to China. We let go people who were five people who were sent here to spy, PLA officers who lied to get into the United States of America to get the visa, were caught lying, were going to be prosecuted. And if you put two and two together, like most rational adults can do, you see that the, the, the dropping of charges against those five PLA spies in our universities um, to get that was an, to get that meeting. That was what we had. One of the things we had to give a concession just to meet with the right people in China. Absolute nonsense. But again, we at least have counterintelligence laws on the book. Japan does not. They have uh, Japan has underfunded counterintelligence capabilities. Ours could be a lot better. But we at least set an example by having a fairly well-organized counterintelligence capability um, in the FBI. Used to be pretty good at any rate. Uh, yeah. I can't say now, but <laughs> Kurt, uh, this is this is a subject to which I want to return with you, especially in light of your own personal experience with counterintelligence. Uh, uh, this is uh, of grave concern because, among other things, um, as the Eric Swalwell caper indicates in our. Congress, uh, we are not taking seriously the dangers of penetration at high levels by the Chinese intelligence services and the compromises that arise of our leadership. It's frightening to contemplate, and I think it does not augur well for our allies who may be even less disposed than we to address these issues uh, seriously and, and uh, effectively. Um, we have to let you go, uh, Kerry, for today. You've covered a lot of very important ground, and I appreciate, again, your firsthand perspective on how things look from Taiwan and more broadly the region and why it really compels us to pay taking more seriously the unrestricted warfare threat and capabilities of the Chinese Communist Party, notably, but not exclusively, uh, those that are manifest in their unrestricted warfare of the political kind. And um, the United Front Work Department, which uh, is a formidable vehicle for practicing it inside countries like ours and uh, those of our allies. Keep up the good work, my friend, if you would, both on that side of uh, the big pond, if you will, and uh, and that you render with us here at the Center for Security Policy. We appreciate you very much and look forward to visiting with you again soon. Thank you, Frank, and I hope your, uh, your listeners will go to Japan 2040, a stock appraisal, and get a much more in-depth overview of what you and I have just discussed. I do as well and uh, strongly commend it because I think this is a really important contribution on a topic that um, will be weighing on all of us quite possibly in the very near future in the worst kind of way if we don't take stock properly of the situation. Next up, we'll speak with Jale Fregela about uh, her native Cuba and the dangers of Marxism on the rise elsewhere in our hemisphere, notably in Peru. That and more straight ahead. Visit us at facebook.com slash securefreedom with Frank Gaffney.